0: your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21. It doesn't feel like that long ago uh, that I was headed to Bible college, and uh, that was an exciting period of my life as an 18-year-old, finally sort of kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life and, uh, and going hard after it. You know, I was thinking this week about how a lot of your teenage years are obsessed with the word normal, whether that word is used often in your in your vocabulary, teenagers or not. This this sort of underlying question that's happening uh, for a, n- a number of years, about five, five, six years is, am I normal? Is this haircut normal? Uh, are these clothes normal? And it's just this kind of constant evaluation to determine where do I fit in? In the grand scheme of things, and and where do I where do I measure? How do I measure up? Essentially, what we're asking is, you know, am I normal? Now, now, in the '60s, uh, we developed a new answer to that question. Uh, the, the new the new answer in the '60s was: you don't want to be normal. You know, be yourself. Be be unnormal, Be be paranormal if you want to. Don't worry about being normal. And you know what's really interesting is that uh, that 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 works as a slogan, and uh, and you've probably seen a cartoon when you were kids encouraging you not to worry so much about fitting in and so on and so forth. But you know what? You were made to fit in. You were made to measure your life up against the standard. And you can deny it all you want and say that that's not how life works, and you'll just keep doing it. And honestly, I spent a month in Johnson County so far. So far, the county's full of people who compare themselves to each other. Right. Whatever the slogans they heard in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s about don't worry, just be yourself, compare. Boy, there's sure a lot of people that drive the same car, dress the same way, and have the same looking house for a culture that doesn't care about being compared to other people. The truth is you can't escape the desire to compare yourself to a standard. You can't. You were made to do that because you were made by God in his image. You You were made to stand in the image of God made to look at God and understand that that's actually normal. You know where I go a lot of times when I'm trying to figure out what normal is? I go to the beginning and the end of the Bible. Now, you may think, well, those are the, the two least normal parts of the entire Bible. Actually, this is the unnormal part of reality. This is the part we're all going to look back on one day in eternity and say, man, that was a weird, that was a weird stretch of time. Light and momentary. <laughs> It's like a vapor now, but man, remember that remember that whole like thing when we when we sinned, and like and like we were insecure in Christ, and and we, we we doubted whether God was real. Man, that was a weird hiccup of a of a handful of millennium. The truth is, is that real normal is actually found in the beginning and the end of the Bible. And I bring that up because this question of normals come up actually quite a bit as it relates to this issue of the presence of God. We said at the very beginning, the very first message of this series, that one of the, it's kind of dangerous to go too long without experiencing God, right? And that one of the reasons that it's dangerous is because it kind of can very quickly become the new normal. What I want to suggest to you today is that even in this worship gathering, a new normal can be set relatively easy, easily where there's maybe a priority on a performance rather than on the delivery of the word of life, Um, where there's a priority of, you know, I'm going to come and I'm going to experience X, Y, and Z. I'm going to do church. And your standards for what is normal, for what should be expected in this time, may have, in fact, slipped over time. And a new normal, an unhealthy normal, may have set in. Well, where do we go to sort all that out? Where do we go to find the normal for a worship gathering. Let well, we go to the end of the Bible. Because at the end of the Bible we see all of this made right. We see the eternal normal, the way things will be and will be forever. And so what I want to do today is walk you through Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and I want to point out some interesting things that are happening in these two chapters. Now, I've marked up the slides a little bit. I've put the scriptures on the slides that I'm going to read, and I've marked them up a little bit. I'm not going to tell you what I'm marking. I I invite you to figure out why I marked them the way I did, but we'll explain at the end, after we read through these texts, kind of what's going on. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and... They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without pavement. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly. The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of of the Lord gives it light. And the lamp is the lamb. By its light the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written In the Lamb's Book of Life. And finally, look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now what we're seeing in this particular structure of all those texts that I read you in chapters 21 and 22 is the presence of something in the absence of something. And these two colors represent the change that's taking place in each one of those texts. The presence of something in the absence of something. That's what we're seeing. That's a literary approach that John is taking as he's describing what he's seeing. He's saying, this is here, which means this isn't here. This is here, which means this isn't here. Over and over again, the presence of something leads to the absence of something. So in verse 3 of chapter 21, it says, He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. That's the presence of God. What's absent? Because God is present. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. No mourning, no crying, no pain. Presence of God? absence of those things verse five through seven he's on the throne it says he will i will be his god and he will be my son well what's absent because of his presence on the throne those who are cowardly by the way very first sin listed cowardly cowardice interesting we don't think about that on this list do we God is present on his throne. Therefore, these people will be absent from that place. Cowards, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. The very next section, verse 22. No temple. Why why isn't there a temple? Because something's present. The temple is the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. No sun or moon. Well, why is the sun or moon absent? Because something's present. The glory of God gives its light. Another, another section in verse 24, the nations walking in earthly glory, that's there, the, the absence, the gates aren't shut, there is no night. There's the glory and the honor of the nations being brought in, that's present. What's absent? Nothing unclean or detestable or false will be allowed there. Again, the next section in chapter 22, verse 1, what's present? The river from the, from the lamb, the tree of life is present. And what's absent? No longer will there be anything accursed. What's present? The throne of God and the Lamb. They will see his face and their na- his name will be on their foreheads. What's absent? Well, night will be no more. There'll be no more light of lamp or sun. And the Lord will be their light. You see, over and over again throughout these last two chapters, normal is being reestablished for us. And what's normal cued off of? What's the thing? What's the baseline of normal? in eternity, the presence of God. And the presence of God means the absence of other things, right? The presence of God means the absence of other things. It just spelled out consistently that because God is here, these things aren't. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this information? Well, look at verse 7 of chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Look at the end of verse 9. It says it again. Those who keep the words of this book. What does it mean to keep the words of this book? Look, verse 10 says it a different way. Verse 10 says it in a negative way. It says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. What do you think it means by do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book? I'll tell you what it means. It means don't take this section of scripture and put it on a shelf as something that's only for the future. Don't quarantine it. Don't segregate it from your life. Integrate this heavenly vision into your reality. That's what it means to keep the words of this book. Keeping the words of this book means essentially letting all of the glory in the future become our agenda today. That's what it means to keep the words of this book. Looking forward and seeing the realities of that day and make them our responsibilities for this day. Looking forward and allowing the awe of eternity to become the agenda of today. That's what it means to keep the words of these books, this book. And friends, if your approach to the book of Revelation, which I admit to you is a cumbersome book, if your approach is in any way to seal it up, to separate it, to kick it off to the side, to make it irrelevant, to not keep the words of this book, to not pursue this vision for your agenda today, then you're disobeying these verses. You're not keeping the words of this book. The presence of God means the absence of a whole bunch of other things. And the way that we pursue him is by pursuing his presence, understanding understanding that we will never experience his full presence until he returns, but seeking it nonetheless. Friends, I, I, I would just encourage you to embrace what Jesus taught us to embrace when he taught us to pray. We talked about this last week, the first part. How do, we, how do we renew our, our, our commitment to accessing God? How do, we, how do we renew our commitment, our desire to be in God's presence? We see him as a father. So Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, says what? First thing, our father who art in heaven. But what's the next thing he says? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Turning the realities of that day into the responsibilities of this day. Turning that glorious vision into, into our agenda for today. We should seek for this day to be as much like that day as possible, knowing full well it will not be all that it will be, yet longing for it to be as much as it can be. You know, uh, many years ago, I bought an old condemned house in downtown Belleville and it needed new wiring and new plumbing and new drywall and everything. And I didn't know how to do any of that. And I bought a bunch of books on wiring and plumbing and drywall, and I stumbled my way through figuring all that stuff out till I had rewired my house and done the plumbing in my house and put a bunch of sheetrock up in my house. And, friends, you can go through each room of my house and see the place I learned to do each thing. <laughs> I never got good at it. It's, it's really honestly not that impressive One thing that did happen is that in my effort to learn those things, I became so much more appreciative of the experts who do them well. You know, the Bible asks us, tells us that that if we long for his appearing, we will be sanctified in that longing. That if we have this urge for Jesus to return, we will be sanctified in that urge. And I just tell you point blank, I think many of us fail to long for that. Because we're not trying to do the things that only He can do. In a very American, efficiency oriented way, we've said, I'm not going to try to to see healing in my life. I'm not going to try to grow in Christ's presence because all of that stuff is going to happen later and He's going to do that. Friends, no. He calls us to set all of that eternal glory as our daily agenda. And yes, We'll look through the decades of your life and see where you were learning. And yes, it will not be impressive. But the net effect is, is that you will have built an amazing life seeking the presence of God and deep in your heart, because you've been trying, you will long for the master to come back and make all things new. We should be seeking the presence of God because eternity is dominated by the presence of God. I broke all of the things that are absent into three categories, and they basically come down to this. Suffering, sin, and secondaries. And what I want to encourage you this morning to think about is is that all three of these things will change as you begin to seek Christ's presence. They won't entirely go away, but they will be changed. The experience of these three things will be changed. The very beginning of verse 21, of chapter 21, Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And it says, He will wipe away the tears from their eyes, and no longer will there be any mourning or sadness or crying or death. The presence of Jesus will eliminate suffering one day. So what does that look like today? It doesn't eliminate suffering, but it sure removes a big part of the sting sure removes a big part of the confusion. It sure sets it all into perspective. If you're suffering today, if you have chronic pain, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're suffering from just a bad decision in your past and suffering the consequences of that, you need to understand that, that the thing you really should do, the thing you're going to be tempted to do is try to fix that thing. Uh, but if you came to me and, and, and asked me how to fix that thing, I would say seek the face of Jesus. Because where else can you go? If you will experience the presence of God in your life again, if this church will experience the presence of God, it's not going to make our sufferings go away. That's going to happen when Jesus is with us physically. But it will fundamentally transform the nature of our sufferings. Well, what about sin? Honestly, guys, some of you are struggling and have struggled for a long time with a life-dominating sin. And what I mean by a life-dominating sin is something that you'd really like to see go away your flesh just loves and is greedy for and won't let go and you'll have seasons where things are okay and then back into the ditch again and over and over and over again what do you do about that well again there may be some practical things to do about that particular sin but the truth is guys that you know what's really going to change your relationship with that sin being in the light of jesus presence a surpassing replacing affection will take hold of you and God will do an amazing work in in the sins in your life just by being present just just by experiencing him more frequently you will be surprised to see sins grip loosened no it it, it won't it won't go away until Jesus fully returns but it'll fade it'll fade as Jesus presence renews in our lives and what do I mean by secondaries? Guys, it was the only word I could think of that started with an S. And I am fully committed to alliteration. I don't care. <laughs> Judge me all you want. You're going to just have to get used to it because that's what I do. Uh, what do I mean by secondaries? What's well, really interesting, perhaps the thing most cited in the text is actually this idea that the sun and the moon and lamps won't be there anymore. Isn't that weird? Did you, did you notice that? Like, like that kept coming back over and over and over again. Well, what what's the sun and the moon and lamps? They're, they're, they're secondary reflections of the thing that God is, right? God is light. God is, God is glory. The sun, the moon, and the lamps are just echoes of that glory. And, you know, our life is full of echoes of God's glory. And without God's presence, those echoes start to become idols. Marriage is an echo of God's glory. Money is an echo of God's glory. Food is an echo of God's glory. And these are secondaries that God has given us to show us good things about himself in the light of his presence. But when God's presence is no longer felt, experienced, those things become elevated to be the most important thing. The problem with so many of these secondaries in our life is not that they're not good. That's actually the problem. That's actually the problem. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, well, what's, what's, what are you struggling with? And he's like, well, I, I'm, I long to have this, and I long to have that, and I want to be here, and I want to I do this, and I just laughed. It's an inappropriate in counseling setting. And looked at me, and was like, well, why are you laughing at me? And I, I just said, the good stuff will always get you. Everything he listed was admirable and good, and those are the things That'll really grab you. Because you don't notice that the secondaries, the secondary good things have become the primaries. And over time, God's presence fades in our lives, and the secondaries become a bigger deal. So we should seek God's presence because that's what it means to keep the words of this scripture, of, of this prophecy. And we should seek God's presence because the three real big problems in our lives, suffering, sin, and these secondaries that that so easily entangle, that so easily discourage, are honestly all dealt with in a much better way when we are in God's presence on a regular basis. So we should keep these words. Now, how? Well, let me walk you through the last part of this chapter, chapter 22, and show you some practical ways of doing that. But 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 as I move in that direction, I just want to underline something that I'm saying. God's presence is fundamentally disruptive, right? Like like God's presence is the light comes on, and the the cockroaches of sin <laughs> scramble, right? God's presence is fundamentally disruptive. It's it's crazy to see this glorious moment at the end of history where we see see the consummation of the gospel and God's will fully on display before all people. And we see a bunch of things getting disrupted and and cast away and sent away and and disappearing. So I just want to say that. I just want to underline that. I felt like I should say that. God's presence is fundamentally disrupting. And, and we can be sure that as we seek his presence, we will face opposition both internally and externally in seeking that presence. Internally from our flesh, externally from the enemy of our souls. Seeking God's presence is serious business. It is fundamentally disruptive. And I also wanted to underline before we talk about the practicals that God's presence is simply this, the primary difference maker in a million different ways. And that we mustn't ever look at heaven and say, well, I'll, I'm so happy that I'll be in a place where there's no pain. Or I'm so happy I'll be in a place where, where there's no more physical difficulties or sin. Friends, those are, those are side benefits to the main occupation of heaven. To be in his presence, to be his child. To be in the place where the dwelling place of God is with man. So how? How? How do we keep the words of this book? How do we pursue the presence of Jesus? Well, in one of the most hilarious moments in all of the Bible, uh, verse 8, we see how not to do it. (laughs) Now, you need to understand this. John has just experienced what none of us will probably ever experience uh, until eternity. He has just seen this amazing heavenly vision. Look what he does in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, are you kidding me? You just saw all of this and now you're worshiping me? He says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book, worship God. So after all of this amazing glory, after this incredible heavenly vision, the first time John acts on it, he screws it up. He worships the messenger. Isn't doesn't that I mean that's that's what I would do. That's I would totally mess it up somehow. And and what I want to say is as we pursue this, as we practically pursue God, I think there's two points from this particular section. First is we need to be discerning. We need to not be swept up in emotion, right? We need to not be afraid of emotion, but we need to be discerning. John gets swept up in a moment where he's worshiping the wrong thing after just seeing an incredible vision of the right thing. I bet he was like, you know, just, just, gosh, I can't believe I did that. I think the other thing to think of to remember is, let's just be patient with the fact that we are but dust. And the vision we are seeking is so much bigger than our capacities. And we need to approach this as a child, trusting in our good father to make the, to make the way and to carry the day and to overlook all of our incredible goof-ups. So that's the first thing is be discerning and, and be a little patient with yourself. Trust in God's gifts, in God's goodness, not just yours. You will get discouraged if you make seeking God's presence about your human efforts. And you will get sidetracked if you make seeking God about, uh, uh, if, you, if you lower the threshold of discernment in an effort to seek God. Second point, be holy. Look at verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates." For outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You know, in our modern ears, this is a bit of a buzzkill. We've just seen this incredible heavenly vision. We've just seen Jesus high and lifted up. Why does he have to keep talking about sin? Why does he have to keep talking about people who aren't going to, Get to experience it. Because the Bible's pretty clear, friends. Take this to heart. The Bible says that we should be holy as He is holy, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know, this church is built on a, a, a biblical appreciation for the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the one thing I think that, that we probably need to know most about the Holy Spirit? He's holy. Sin matters. Personal holiness matters. Your choices of entertainment matter. Your time on the computer matters. Your words to your coworkers matter. Your thoughts on your drive to work matter. In seeking the Lord, we must take personal holiness seriously. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? The Psalm says He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Do we want to seek the Lord? Do we want to seek the presence of the Lord? Do we want to experience the presence of the Lord together in, in our corporate gatherings? Then let us take personal holiness seriously because that is who God is. If you have a view of grace that somehow makes it easier for you to sin, you've got a wrong view of grace. And if you've got a view of eternity that turns down the importance of holiness then you've got a wrong view of eternity. And if you think we can experience the presence of God as a people without all of us renewing our commitment to walk in his light, to put away sexual immorality, to put away lying and deception, to seek him earnestly with our bodies and our minds and our souls, You don't understand the presence of God. You don't understand how this is going to happen. This is going to happen when God's people are more desirous of his presence than their sins. So that's number two, be holy. Number three, be the body. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he revealing this? Why is Jesus present in eternity? Why is Jesus sending this message to us through his messenger, verse 16, for the churches? What I'm gonna do next week is I'm gonna show you how I believe that it was God, it's God's will to disclose his presence in the corporate gathering that God has assembled his saints throughout scripture for the purpose of experiencing him together and how that is better than experiencing him alone. But what I want to do right now is simply point to this. We have an incredible problem believing that our individual Christian walks are the priority above our corporate walk together. And that's just not in the Bible. What happens here is the influencer for what happens elsewhere. Maybe it's just because we do the math and we think, man, I mean, I'm not here six days. I'm only here one. I'm only here for a couple hours, and I'm out there for the rest of the time. Or maybe it's because we've kind of bought into this, this I think, rather unbiblical view of mission that says the really important stuff all happens outside the church's walls. But whatever the reason, if you just actually want to do what the Bible says, you will see that God mostly discloses his presence in the corporate gathering amongst the saints assembled together to seek him. And that's the vision we just saw in Revelation. Not of you and Jesus, but of us and Jesus. Right? So be the body. If, if those corporate intentions weren't clear enough, Jesus reminds us that he is the root and the descendant of David. What's he saying? He's rooting himself in God's people. He's rooting himself in the people of God. He's like, I am of and for the people of God. Final point. Be thirsty. Be thirsty. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price, come. We have one of our children, you probably, if you've got kids, you probably have at least one like this, that's always on the verge of dehydration, because drinking water is just like something, they just somehow, they didn't get that part of their brain that told them to drink water, and so... We'll be out at a theme park. We'll be somewhere and they'll just kind of fall over. <laughs> oh, Brooke didn't drink any water for the last six days. <laughs> Friends, uh, when, when David prays, as the deer pants for the living water, so my soul thirsts for you, he's not saying something romantic or metaphorical. He's, he's stating the truth about his soul and your soul right now. You are thirsty. Even if you don't feel thirsty, you are thirsty. Your soul is desperate for the living God. And this entire complicated, cumbersome heavenly vision book ends with a simple call. If you're thirsty, come. Because in Jesus, the gates to the river of life have been opened permanently for all who access through him. Jesus has made atonement for your sin. He's removed your guilt, and you, by placing your faith in him, can access God's presence with boldness and confidence. So the the, the real point of application is, yes, be discerning. By all means, be holy. Yes, let's do this together. Let's be the body. But honestly, it's just as simple as this. Are you thirsty? Do you long for a corporate experience of the presence of God? Do you long for for this vision to be more normal for us? Then you're thirsty. And the invitation that you must by faith right now believe is that it's time to come. It's time to enter in and drink from the living water. Now, I bet you didn't know this, but there's actually one moment in the whole Bible where you are actually in the Bible and you have a speaking role. You have a speaking part in one part of the Bible. You probably never knew this, but it's right there. We just read it, verse 17. Who is speaking in verse 17? The Spirit and the Bride say come. Who, who is John seeing when it says the Bride? He's seeing a mass of people who have all been saved by the blood of Jesus, crying out in unison. Come, this is what you were made for. This is what you were created to swim in and be lav- lavish in the presence of God, friends. I look out, I see you, and I just understand this. John is looking forward to this moment. When the bride is united with Christ and you are in that crowd, if you are in Christ now, you are in that crowd and you are calling back to yourself. You're thirsty, come! It's better than you could possibly imagine. It makes everything right. It drives all of the bad stuff away. It fills everything with good. Come! Come! Let's pray. As you bow your heads to pray, we're going to sing a song together before we do communion. So just sing with all of your heart um, the song that we have ready for you to worship Jesus with. Feel free to stand after I'm done praying. And then I'll come in and introduce communion. Lord Jesus, we want this to be our cue. We want this to be Our agenda. We know that we can't make it all happen today, that that we are so dependent on you uh, in in every degree of this. But Lord, we just want to sincerely call out to you today and say, by faith, we look at your word and we say, this is the ultimate, the final normal. We will live with God forever. We will be in his full, complete, perfect presence forever. And that will change everything. And we know that everything's not going to change today. But we'd like something to change. We know your presence, Lord, is always disruptive. And we surrender to you today a sincere, heartfelt, just sort of asking permission, I guess. Saying, please come and do the work that we desperately need. We pray, God, that you would bless us in our worship, bless us as we partake in communion a little bit, fill our hearts with a clarity about how thirsty we really are for you. And come, Lord, be present in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.